So let's turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Jesus, as our master, yeah, but as a little guy. So every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, think back to 12. They went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days... They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'd love to go right into that story, but... You have not had enough announcements this morning, and I feel you need it. Just a couple more. I wasn't here last week, and just so you know, we're going to continue in our study guide where we left off, so we're going to continue with this story. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do about uh, baptism next week. I'll probably put it together with transfiguration. So we're continuing in the study guide. You saw this slide about a feast coming up. What's that all about? Lent is coming, the six weeks of preparing our hearts for Easter, the six weeks of remembering that we are mortal and that we are sinners and that we live by the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And that holy season is bracketed by two great feasts, Mardi Gras before Ash Wednesday, see how excited I'm getting, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection, and in between is Lent. So we've decided, since we're not quite living in New Orleans here, we're not going to do Mardi Gras. We're just going to have a love feast on February 7th, where we'll, after the Sunday service, we'll have a time of uh, finger food and fellowship and just celebration together of the goodness of life, the celebration of the goodness of this life. Just as with Easter Sunday, we celebrate the goodness of resurrection life and eternal life. So... We're bracketing the Great Lent season with Mardi Gras, Easter. You be here. You be part of that. All right. That was a great reading. That was a great reading. I'll tell you why in a little into this sermon a bit. Because you got the tone of Jesus' voice right. So I, too, am going to say to you, do you remember being 12 years old? Some of you, pause. Roll back the centuries. Twelve. I remember twelve. Or how about remembering your kid being twelve? All your kids being twelve. 
What is it about 12, besides a dozen, a number of tribes in Israel, all that stuff? What is it about 12? Is it just the end of childhood, the beginning of adulthood, teenager being a fabrication of the Western world after 1945? It's a category that doesn't exist. You do know that. You do know that teenager as a category does not exist in Western culture until just two, three generations ago. You had childhood, and then you had a rite of passage, and you had adulthood. And all cultures knew that you, you were a young adult when you were 15 or 16. You were young, and, and many breaks were given for you, but you were an adult. Things were expected of you now. And fascinatingly, people rose to that. <clears throat> but that's a whole other topic. Don't get me started. But 12... Important time, because 12, for instance, in the Hebrew culture, 12 would be a time where you would be expected to have learned enough and to know enough about the Word of God to be ready for a bar mitzvah, where you would step forward and become a son of the law and a young adult who could handle the Word of God and know the Word of God, however, however new you are to it. 12, very, very important. The tender age. And it is an age where parents are losing the child. They're losing the childhood. And you know, when you were 12, you didn't feel you were losing anything. You were straining to become 14 or 18. Remember that that's the age where you're just not old enough fast enough. There's another side of life. Or you're getting old too fast. You're trying to hang on. You want to be 12 again. And your kids catch you doing really stupid things. And they go, Dad, what are you doing? You're acting like a 12-year-old. And then you say, you'll understand one day. <clears throat> so we have this scene where 12-year-old Jesus has been left behind. And it is a very emotional little story. It's powerfully emotional. And what is the emotion? What are the emotions that are clearly being shown to us here? Well, for us, the audience, we're reading. The audience and Mary, the emotion is the fear. The fear of losing the child. The fear of losing the beloved one. Mary and Joseph... They had been given the responsibility to protect and raise this child. I mean, imagine, Mary. This child has survived the danger of pregnancy and of giving birth practically on a donkey in a strange town and having to deliver the child in a stable with animals. This is an era where children didn't make it, where mothers didn't make it. The danger of that, and they survived this miracle child, survived. And there were assassination attempts. That was our story two weeks ago when King Herod, in the filthy politics of this world, tried to kill the son of David, the one born king of the Jews. And miraculously, under the leading of angels, they escaped into Egypt and saved and protected the child. They did what parents do. They did what parents are hardwired by God in our creation to love and protect the child only to blow it 
and lose him in a big city somewhere. You think of that fear. To lose your child in the world. To raise a child in, in its innocence and to protect and love and cherish and try to launch that child well, only to lose the child in the world. That is the fear of so many parents throughout all cultures. And that's the scene we're given. We're not given any other indication of what happened in the life of Jesus' boyhood. Just this. So there's a reason why it's important. So this is the one emotion we get as the readers is the horror of the losing of a child. You haven't seen that. You haven't felt that till you think you've lost your child. That's fascinating emotions. Wow. Meanwhile, Jesus. Now he's not four or five where he's ignorant of how his parents might feel or he's ignorant of how much time has passed. He's too old for that. But he is a budding teenager. And what we mean by teen, what we mean by adolescence, and the world just, the, the word adolescence just means budding adulthood. And the key to it is the hiving off of the individual person, the leaving the home to become an individual person. And Jesus budding teen, feels quite independent and quite unafraid to hang out on his own, completely absorbed in the things that fascinate him, the things that interest him. He's not part of the fear in this scene at all. And then someone who doesn't get enough attention, and I picture them as old men. There wouldn't have been any women there. These are the elders in the temple, the teachers, scribes, maybe a priest or two. The men who were surrounded, surrounding this 12-year-old boy, <clears throat> and they don't get enough attention because they should have known better, right? Imagine the elders in the temple. Didn't anybody ever wonder, boy, doesn't this boy have a home? When are his parents going to come for him? Three days in the temple. Should have known better. Where does he sleep? Who fed him? during those three days. Think about that. Was he so engrossing of them that they could not let him go? They didn't want to be rid of him? I think when Mary comes in, it says, you know, she's astonished. We don't even have a proper word for the state of shock. There you are after three days. Okay, mixed emotions, right? But you don't think she shot daggers at all the elders in the temple? And you can see them being sheepish and ashamed, knowing darn well he should have been home with his parents days ago. But they were unable to let him go. Because he was a genius. He was a spiritual genius. You spend your whole life slogging away trying to understand the mystery of Hebrew Scripture, serving the Lord in the mysteries of the temple. How many did, times did you hear the voice of God or have angels appear to you? Not very often, people. It's just like coming to church here, Lambrick. You keep thinking, you know, when are we going to get an angel once in a while? Some divine thing. They're going by faith. 
And then along comes this 12-year-old prodigy who is brilliant in the things that you have spent decades trying to understand. And even if he was still young and even if he still did not know a lot, it says they were astounded by his wisdom and his questions because questions reveal wisdom. You got to really have a certain insight just to wonder and ask certain questions. And they said they were astounded by his questioning and by the wisdom of his answers. So much so that I don't know, maybe they never went home. Maybe they had wives at home going, "What the supper's cold? Where is he at the temple for 3 days?" Cuz they got this kid there who is blowing their minds. Did they call others and say, "Listen, send out a carrier pigeon. Get everybody else into the temple right now. You got to see this kid. He's amazing." And Mary comes and she is astonished and shocked by the whole scene. "You guys should have known better. And how could you do this <clears throat> to your father and mother? You know what we would feel losing you." All right, about here Jesus answers. And I'm going to criticize the history of Christianity. Because and movie making, Christian movies too. If you get the tone of Jesus voice one way, you get a completely different scene. And when I think of the history of Christian art and the paintings of the child Jesus, unless you're doing some deep iconography, they blow it. They consistently blow it and diminish the humanity of Jesus and make him some weird little divine avatar thing. He's a boy like every other boy. If you get the old Bible movie scene, woman, why were you searching for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? Oh. Some some little heavy authority. Well, he's God. He can have authority. He can talk to his mother like that. If you get that tone that he's chastising his mother, the whole the story goes a whole different way. A way I choose not to go. But if you see it as genuinely innocent as a child so engrossed in the things that fascinate him and that drive his whole life that he's found with these elders and these rabbis and these priests who also are driven by this and it's 3 days of intense love of the things he loves and cares about the word of god the things of god And we can only speculate how he he he's still learning and unfolding as a young boy but he also knows something about these scriptures about this god that I know this god I I know this one is my father not Joseph and when he's woken up or shocked out of his 3 day binge of glory the things he loves and his mother's disappointed and he simply says but why did you have to search like didn't wouldn't you have come to the temple right away didn't you think i would be here do you know who i am you know who i am didn't you think i'd be here in my father's house 
doing the things of my father, caring about the things of my father. And of course she had said, how could you do this to your father and I? So there's this little contrast between Joseph, the stepfather, and Jesus, and the father in heaven. Well, I'm just sharing some thoughts with you, okay? This might help you when you're reading your Bible. One reason why the story is here, let's just dispense with it right away. It's the obvious reason, it's the surface reason, and yes, we should consider it. It's very simple that this is revelation. The the Gospel of Luke is unfolding. We are revealing who this one is. There's been the whole wise men coming and the star and the, the, the calling of him as the king of kings or the king of Israel. And now in continuing revelation of who this one is, this one born of Mary, this is where he's declaring, my father in heaven. It clearly means that he declares that the temple in Jerusalem is my father's house. That's clearly meant for us to see this, that Scripture is revealing and saying, this one is the Son of God. Why search for me? Did you not know I would be in my Father's house? Because the temple in Jerusalem is my Father's house. Actually, all of Jerusalem can also be seen as the house of the Lord. Psalm 84.10 says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be but a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The house of the Lord is more than a building. A household is more than a building. A household in the ancient world, it is the entire domain of your extended family, of your possessions and property, of your place of being. It wasn't just a house. That would be the house of the Lord, the domain of the Lord. So yes, it's a story that's obvious to tell us that this one is the Son of God, and that Jesus had already in the adolescence a budding self-awareness that I am also a unique child of God, a son from heaven. And so it is important that we accept that. As that. It, but if you, if you just see it as that, then we miss the drama, the human drama of the story. Okay? And that drama is the fear of the parents and the notion of being lost, the lost child. It is a terror that I remember feeling. My child was born. I've lost my kid in a department store and panicked. How many of you remember the name of Michael Dunahee? I never drive past that school on Hillside without thinking of him. He was only four years old when he was kidnapped, and they never, ever found him. They never, it's a dead case. They had no leads. Just a kid playing in the swing set, gone. When you think of that, you think that a parent would rather have the certainty that the child is dead than to never know. Where is that child? How is that child doing? That emotion is captured also in the story of the father of the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus told us. Jesus, on a number of occasions, uses lostness to be a lost child. 
is a motif in spiritual revelation. You know the story of the prodigal son. The parable that Jesus says was a father who had two sons, two boys. One grew up fine, stayed home, fine young son. The other one said, Father, give me half my inheritance. I am out of here. Had an issue with dad, had an issue with the home. Give me my money and took off into the world. And as you know, young, foolish, with a pocket full of money, squandered his life, his time, his health, his youth in the world. Now you have to see that the father doesn't know this. The father doesn't know where the child is. You can't read the parable with the father sitting on the hill watching all of this. That's us in the audience. We know what's happening to the boy. Till he's finally in pig slop. His life has hit the absolute bottom. And he has enough left. After all the dope and booze and carousing and wrecking of his brain. To say, maybe I can crawl back home and beg for forgiveness and my old man will take me back. I can be a slave in his house because I don't deserve to be a son anymore. The dad doesn't know any of that is happening. All we have is the dad waiting on the side of the road for the kid. And you don't think there was a mother there? Worrying about her boy. It's the tragedy of love. You don't stand there waiting for your boy if you don't care. The whole thing is love. The whole thing is the pain and the fear is only there if you care. If you realize that your heart is not separate from the one you love. There's a oneness in love. And the risk of the pain is equal to the risk of the joy in love. You hear the phrase, I came to save that which is lost. And if you train yourself to think of it only as I came to find some stuff that I lost, like a misplaced coin, you fail to see what the scripture says about God. God is not coming to find some stuff that got misplaced. Or coming to get back his stuff that the devil as a thief took. He came to save, rescue a, an endangered, vulnerable one, the lost one. I came to seek and save, says Jesus, to seek and save the lost. We have to put ourselves in the heart of Mary or in the heart of the prodigal son's father. Seeking and longing for the one who's lost. Why? Because of concern. The danger. For us it is the danger of sin because we have free will. We've been lost since Adam and Eve. We've been lost in a world with a busted moral compass and free will. That's a pocket full of money, people. And a world of foolishness. And the Father in Heaven is concerned how we live and what we do with the gift that He's given us. He's given us the gift to be the children of God in this world. And the gift of wisdom and freedom. And we're off misusing it. And he, his heart is broken. We have always been told, oh, he's angry. Yes, there are such themes. But the gospel is all about his broken heart. 
coming to seek and save that which is lost. At the end of that parable in Luke 11, when the older brother says, you never had a feast for me, you didn't slaughter the fatted calf and have appetizers and party gras at Lambrick on February 7th, you didn't do that for me, I've been a good kid all this time. I didn't run away with half the money and wreck my life. Verse 31, he says, My son, you've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. Grave concern. Your Father in heaven has grave concern for us. Because he loves that which is lost. I've said to you before, the understanding of God so loved the world is the fallen, sinful world. He loves it, just like he loves the sun in the pig slop still. He loves it and he is concerned. And he comes to save and rescue and cleanse and honor and hold a feast for the sun who might as well have been dead, but now I found you. Well, I always get heavy, don't I? And I compensate with inappropriate humor. <laughs> so here it comes. I think there's humor here, too. Because I don't know how many of you run away from home. Some of you ran away from home. Some of you took off early in your teen years to go out there and be independent on your own, to get away from your parents, to get away from accountability, to do stuff you can't do at home, right? All the reasons we run away. And you know, you hear stories like my kid took off and went to Vegas. was hanging out in the streets of Vegas, and they got stories, right? Meanwhile, Jesus, he's gone and he ends up being in. He's a church nerd. He runs away. Were you hanging out in the streets of Jerusalem? No, he's in the temple. He's squeaky clean. He's in the temple. You spent three days looking for me. Where were you? Were you checking out Sunset Strip or something to see, oh, is he in the bad part of town? I have to bring my boy home. You didn't go to the church. Yeah, my son ran away. What did he do? Well, he was doing Bible studies in some church. And... Right? That's almost embarrassing. What kind of testimony is that at baptism time, right? So, so it's kind of a normal teenager? Well, so it does, it does have that, I think. And I do think that there are tinges of, of humor and joy in the scripture and just the joy that comes with the normal things in life. My favorite one, of course, being the events around the wedding at Cana. But here's something else to think about in this story. Mary would lose her son on that cross. There was a prophecy made over her when she brought him to the temple when he was just a few days old. That yes, this one is the light. This one is the light to the nations and a light to the Gentiles. And to you, he will be like a sword stabbing through your heart, Mary. Because you're going to lose him. And she did. She lost him for three days. 
They'd gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover. You get the season? The Passover, Easter. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover when she lost her son for three days. Only to find him three days later standing in the house of God, saying, I am the son of the Father, and I must be about my Father's business. It's a beautiful parallel in the very beginning of Luke with the three days in the grave where Mary will be looking for her son. He will be lost around the season of Passover, only to be standing there again one day, saying, I am the son of the Father. I am ascending to heaven to be in the house of God forever. And I have accomplished what I have come for. I came to seek those who were lost and in grave danger to save them and bring them home. And we can say, I once was lost. Now I'm found. That's our celebration. I was blind and now I see. And fear, which has such a grip on us, is broken by perfect love, which always searches and never gives up and always seeks so that we no longer need to be slaves to fear, that we can sing aloud that we are the children of God. He loves us as the Father loved even the prodigal son. And he will save and safely bring home that which is lost. He knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb. He chose us, he called us by name to be in his family. We are surrounded by the arms of a loving father. We're surrounded and we sing songs of deliverance. Amen.